I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Mer People. Mermaid shows, wait, I could potentially grow up and get paid to be a mermaid? That's a job? Today, we're talking to executive producer and director Cynthia Wade. No longer the legends of sailors or the stars of fairy tales, mermaids exist. With a custom-made fin, a can-do attitude, and some strong swimming skills, you too can splash it up as a person. Whether it's entertaining children at birthday parties, wowing spectators at Las Vegas casinos, or turning heads at a people pageant, you can bring the magic of the seas to dry land. Merpeople dives into the fascinating world of underwater performers who have turned their love for the mystical sea creatures into real-world careers. Get ready to set sail on an unforgettable voyage and immerse yourself in a world where fantasy becomes reality. What if the entire thing explodes catastrophically, the glass window breaks, and the mermaid shoots out the side while lacerating all her major arteries on the way out, dies and traumatizes 47,000 children? And I'm joined now by executive producer and director Cynthia Wade. Cynthia, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hi. So, Cynthia, I was introduced to the world of mermaiding through your doc series. How were you introduced to the world of mermaiding? I was introduced to the world of mermaiding through a photographer named Andriana Seymour, who's really known for embedding herself in subcultures. She has done projects around roller derby. And so for a couple of years, she was embedding herself in mermaids around the country and thought it would make a really, really cool documentary series. She partnered with the creators of Queer Eye, Scout Productions, and then they went on a hunt for a director. Um, Apparently, I was the sixth or seventh director that interviewed. And I'm just I'm so thrilled and glad that I went on this journey. It was about a year and a half of filming this series. It's really incredible. And I've been telling everybody I know to watch it ever since I finished it, which, you know, really speaks to the, I think, the amount that we need this series kind of right now. I'm just curious, um, the people that you met while you're making this series, do they consider themselves, most of them, like hobbyist mermaids or do they all kind of want to be mermaids all the time? Mm. I mean, I think that they would, most of them consider themselves professional mermaids. Um, There are some hobbyists, but most of them would love to be able to make a living being a professional mermaid full time. Um, I mean, I think that what they tap into is what we all have, which is that, you know, life on land can be tough. And particularly we've all come, you know, we're coming out of this very long, years long pandemic. And there's this sort of sense of feeling ethereal and weightless and otherworldly in in the water. And that's what they're tapping into. They're tapping into that human desire, that universal desire to be something greater than yourself in your mortal body. 
There's this really interesting dichotomy with becoming a mermaid. There's like this barrier to entry situation, which is both, it's both an inclusive community and a difficult community to get into because you have to have this set of skills. You have to be more than just a strong swimmer, right? To be a mermaid, you have to be a strong swimmer in a fin. (laughs) It's insane. I mean, when you think about a 40, 50 pound silicon tail and you're using all of that core strength, like the super core strength and those swimming skills, but then you're blind underwater, you're deaf underwater. You need to make it look effortless. You are smiling. You're graceful. You're ethereal. Um, it's, I guess it's like ballet, it's like ballet, really, where when people, when you watch a ballet performance, people are flying through the air and it looks absolutely effortless. And that's what the mermaids do. And they make something incredibly hard look easy. They really do. Um, and I love the opening of the series. It's sort of this little mermaid tragedy where we see this group of performers diving and swimming. They're entertaining a crowd and then they surface in excruciating pain because the pH balance is off in the pool. <laughs> Can you talk about why you started the story here? Yeah, we had many, many different openings for the series and went around and around and around. It was in in total, we had six editors and we had four story producers. Um, Primarily, we had four editors, but then we had two others come in at different points. So six editors and four story producers and just the level of... um, just really commitment and care and just down to the frame granular wrestling with, with, with each scene. Um, That was a remarkable team as was my team in the field, my production team filming it. Um, Ultimately we, we understood that within a minute it showed the dichotomy. It showed the grace, the beauty, the ease, the magic, and then the, just the incredible hardship that, you know, the unexpected, challenges that mermaids face. So it in in a minute it encapsulated the story. It does seem to a, almost to a person including the wiki watching mermaids from the past there is this whole spectrum of health problems yes. that mermaids can develop, right? Yeah, it's insane. I mean, um a lot of the wiki watching mermaids talked about having to give it up in sometimes in 8 months, in 10 months, in just a year or two. They loved it. And even the wiki watching mermaids who are in their late 70s or in their mid 80s talk about how that was the best job they ever had being a mermaid. And yet the sinus infections, the ear infections, the eye infections, I mean, really, really dangerous. Um, You can blow the blood vessels out in your face, um, especially going into the depths of water and free diving and holding your breath for a really long time. I mean, it's it's quite dangerous. So, yeah, it's um, as Morgana says in the series, it's a danger art. No dead mermaids is her expression, right? No dead mermaids, yeah. Kind of a cute way to remind everybody that uh, it is a very dangerous type of performance. So it seems like liability over these hazards is at least one of the reasons why there are no more wiki mermaids. Can you talk about the history and impact of the wiki mermaids on this kind of performance art? Yeah, I mean, wiki was formed, uh, was created in 1947 um, by a man named Newt Perry, Newton Perry. And he saw an opportunity for a beautiful roadside show in Florida, which was very rural at the time in the late 40s and early 50s, where as the roads were being developed and people were traveling and exploring Florida, they could stop at this beautiful 
underwater spring and see these mermaids. Now, what's interesting to me is the mermaids then and the mermaids now are um, young females, um, white females, quite frankly. Like it's a very um, old school sort of traditional look at what you think a mermaid is supposed to be. And what I loved about making this series and spending time in all of the different pods in the series is that mermaiding has been redefined and this series about the future of mermaiding. I would say that Wikiwatchi is the past and this is about the future of mermaiding. I'm curious what's happening at Wikiwatchi now because we hear that the site is run by the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems the original facility is still there seeing the -hmm. the drone shot above it, Mm -hmm. including that crazy 60-foot tunnel that they all had to swim through to get to the performance area, which, by the way, my personal nightmare, I don't know how, like, that commute to work is intense. Um, But what's happening there now? They still do the shows. Um, And, you know, it is a state facility. It's a state park. So we had the permission to go in and film, film the performances and film um, in and around the park. But they absolutely refused any interviews with us whatsoever. It's very closed. Mm. Um, There were other mermaids that talked about being fired or walked off the property. Um, It, you know, Wikiwatchi suddenly shut down and um, canceled its 75th anniversary. All of those former mermaids, the original mermaids coming in, booking tickets, planning for months and then getting this, you know, incredibly cold email that says no questions. Um, I think that says a lot about the the state of Wikiwachi today in terms of like, it's pretty closed and uh, they did not want to participate. Well, I do want to talk about some of the people that you highlight in your documentary. You bring us the stories of all of these different people at different levels and have different experiences. And one of your main figures is Morgana Alba. Um, she runs this, quote, elite circus siren pod. I mean, she's the one who says, you know, I don't know how I feel about being elite, which is why I said, quote, although it is, I think, pretty elite in the community, as well as, well as the wonderfully named Mermagic Con. Can you talk about Morgana's background? Yeah, I mean, Morgana is amazing. First of all, um, you know, she spends most of her life, uh, maybe a month home when she's home, but most of her life on the road. And and it's in, you know, it's often in cabins. Uh, she has an airstream out in the desert when she's out at the Arizona Ren Fair. I mean, she is on the road and she is somebody who can find anything that's old and fix it. She comes from an engineering background, so she'll figure out how to MacGyver a tank. She fixed up her old Airstream. But she started, you know, as a performer. She was a fire breather. She was a circus performer. She was a pole, you know, she was did all kinds of aerial work on poles and um, you know, up with ropes and and then she was thinking, well, maybe I should add more to my repertoire. And she became a mermaid. She added mermaiding and realized that there was so much work for mermaiding that she created her own pod, the Circus Siren Pod. And so we follow Morgana and the Circus Siren Pod in the course of the series. Mermaiding really found me, not the other way around. I was working as a circus performer. My primary discipline was as an aerialist. And I just started to sort of pick up other skills to add to my repertoire, make me more bookable. I became a stilt walker, I became a fire breather, and at one point I was like, okay, let's add mermaiding. She is the one who coins the term no dead mermaids. That's the moniker of her company. I think speaks quite accurately that this is a danger art, you know, that hypothermia is a real risk, that there are real risks to this. And while it looks beautiful and effortless and ethereal, it really is a dangerous profession, can be a dangerous profession. 
So the thing about Morgana that I kept thinking was, it seems like a whole series could just be made about her. I mean, she's this performer with this litany of weapons skills. Yes. She has this incredible backstory. She's also a convener, right? Because it seems like someone who makes their living by getting some of the very few, you know, paid job opportunities for performing mermaids. She's running a convention that helps cultivate more mermaids. She's also very generous with her, you know, her skills and her space and her talents, right? She gives feedback. Mm -hmm. She's like really like a matriarchal figure in this community, right? Yeah. Morgana is one of several leaders in the community. One of the things that was really challenging about making this series is that we wanted to be able to have to have the depth of really sitting with a character and um, following a character over time, like, you know, where they are practicing and trying out for an audition um, or they're saving their money because they're hoping they can go to a mermaid convention. And yet it is such a diverse community. We wanted to be able to really go to different conventions, different events um, and spend time in different pods. So one of the early shoots that we had was with at Morgana's Mermagicon, which um, takes place yearly in the spring and it's on the East Coast and um, merfolk from around the country come and uh, they perform and showcase in this in this two minute um, event where you go into the pool for two minutes and you sort of showcase your talents. Um, but there are other kinds of pods and there are other kinds of conventions that maybe are they don't have competitions. It's more about community. It's more about collecting, um, you know, a community around a spring or a pool. So um, Morgana is one of many. So one of the other most influential people that we meet in your documentary is Eric Ducharme, known as the Mer Tailor for his work fabricating these uh, beautiful tales, these monofins. He decides to build a business around mermaiding, a much bigger business. Can you talk about the stakes for him? Because they seem really, really high. The stakes for Eric are really high. Yes. Um, I mean, here's somebody who at age three was saying mermaids, 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 mermaids. I mean, to the point where it exhausted his mother. But man, his mother talk about parenting like she understood that this was something that was so deep for her child that she was she leaned into it. She said, okay, mermaids, you want mermaids? Let's figure out how you can see mermaids. Let's see how you can have a mermaid doll. Let's see how you can make yourself a mermaid tail. So by the time he was four or five, he was wrapping his legs in cloth and plastic bags. Um, and then eventually he went and hung out at Wikiwachi as a young boy. And then he became a performer at Wikiwachi. He was fixing tails at Wikiwachi. And then at 16, um, he left Wikiwachi and he thought, someday I'm going to have my own tank. Someday I'm going to have my own mermaid oasis. Two years ago, we bought this building. It had been a furniture store for the last 25 years. You know, one might say, how are you going to turn that metal building into this magical oasis? And my answer would be like, watch me. Eric talks about having um, Tourette syndrome. And he has a, I think, what would be considered sort of a neurodivergent brain. And there is a superpower in having a neurodivergent brain because he could see it. He could look at that old building and realize that it could be turned into something 
that, you know, most people couldn't see, couldn't envision. And he's really a testament to, I think, just following your dreams and just like holding on to a vision. And boy, everything is self-taught, like every tank, every pH level, every, you know, the just the salt water. It's pretty it's very, very complicated in that aquarium. And it's all self-taught. He's just he's endlessly curious and is always tinkering. He's a little bit like a Willy Wonka in some ways. Yeah. What really struck me about him was that he really built a world that he had in his head from when he was a child. And in some ways, another person that we meet in your doc also did. And that's that's Blixunami, like also built a world sort of based on uh, something that they always knew about themselves as a child, but really, I think, with much more adversity. Can you talk a little bit about Blixunami, what your impressions of them were and how they talk about, you know, their own transformative story and how their childhood made them kind of who they are in this world that they this sort of family they've built around themselves today? Yes, the Blixunami. I mean, the Blixunami grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, in a very traditional church-going family with very, very traditional values. And the Blick Tsunami from a very young age loved mermaids and loved dolls. And their parents were not comfortable with that. The Blick Tsunami told me a lot of stories about how if they had dolls or if they were drawing mermaids in their room, um, their parents would come in and take away the materials to make the drawings or, you know, would knock the dolls off the shelf, um, off the bureau. And so a lot of adversity and sort of the messaging from early on is you can't do that. This is not appropriate. Maybe even this is shameful. And to rise above that. Well, I reached out to my mom and I asked if I could stay for a couple of weeks and the response I got was basically a no, you can't, but live your best life and good luck. Blix is an amazing artist and illustrator. I mean, all of the illustrations in Blix's section in the series, those are Blix's. Like Eric as well, like the, the, the illustrations are really quite beautiful. And it was a way for Blix to retreat and to center themselves and to to be in that kind of really safe space, that takes an enormous amount of, I think, sort of self-possession and sort of holding on to oneself to think, you know what, the world is telling me that I can't be this, that somehow there's something wrong with me, that that I'm I'm different and I need to change. And yet this is my true north. This is what makes me feel calm and centered. This is really who I am. And to rise above that and Blix has found family in their mermaid family. And I think that that's really very much what the series is about. I mean, sometimes it's about a chosen family, a found family. Yeah, it was a delight and a joy to film with Blix. So directors often illustrate the difficulties of a sport or a career by introducing us to an underdog, someone that we root for, but that might be bound to fail. And that person in your doc is the Arkansas-based mermaid named Sparkles. She lacks a training facility. She lacks opportunities. She definitely lacks self-confidence, gets in her own head a lot. And you follow her on a paid gig to swim at a birthday party She's late, and then the zipper breaks on her tail. You wanted drama, but did you think it was going to go no. that badly in that moment? No. Um, what? Yeah, Sparkles is, I think, an important backbone in the series because Sparkles is all of us. 
right? Sparkles is the girl next door. Sparkles embodies all of our sort of just mortal desires to be something better than, you know, or to move out of wherever, you know, if you're in a job that you don't fully love, or you're just have a job because you need to pay the bills, but you're dreaming bigger, that's Sparkles. And so Sparkles is an important backbone in the series because we can, we can really understand mermaiding and, and understand the stakes through through her eyes. <laughs> yeah, Sparkles, um, Sparkles often has bad luck, um, which makes her incredibly charming. And, and also you just root for her even more. So that was surprising. Uh, it was a super hot day in Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> when we were shooting, it was, um, you know, probably August in Little Rock, super, super hot day. She was late. Yeah. Ah, why is everything breaking today? Figure it out. No, it's like it came off a zipper. Like um, the zipper broke on one side. <gasps> Shut up. No, that's seriously. No way. <gasps> There's no way to fix that. Are you kidding me right now? No, that happened in real time. And I just thought my cameraman, Bo, just kept filming it. And I thought, you know what? I just have to just be quiet and just let this play out. So I was mm. very much crouched in the corner, holding the monitor with the earphones on, just kind of like, okay, let's sort of see what happens. Well, we go from that moment to this incredible moment, because we know that Sparkles had bombed this past audition for Morgana. And to be honest, you know, I found myself wondering, is she actually even good at this mermaiding thing, knowing that she can't practice, you know, um, but she does get this other chance to do this showcase at Mermagicon. Can you tell me how you felt watching Morgana's reaction to Sparkles at this moment where she just completely shines at Mermagicon and shows everyone what she can do? Yeah, I mean, that was a Mermagicon was a really great um, shoot um, that day. Most of this was shot on single camera, which is really tough. We had a very small but mighty crew. Mermagicon um, was one of the few days that we had two cameras so that we could really be on Sparkles, but then we could be on Margana simultaneously. So that was, and oh, of course, we had an underwater camera for that, for that day. <gasps> Sparkles! Oh my God! Look at how slow she is. Yes, beautiful slow. It's like she's in slow motion. It's fantastic. That was just, I think, a relief for us. And you can feel it in the edit. Just a relief after all of that tension. And she was like, I mean, she barely made it there to Mermagicon in her little car, in her little broken down car. Like it was touch and go whether she was going to make it to Mermagicon. So that I think was just like exhaling for us. And I think is exhaling for the audience. It was really an awesome shooting day. Honestly, her journey is so interesting because then she gets invited to Las Vegas and you just see the insecurity again when she goes into the hotel room and there are all those women there that are all so tight and have their own language. And, you know, she's like, hi. And then she has that terrible moment of hyperthermia. We have to pull Sparkles. Sparkles out. Come out right now. Out, 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 out. I can tell you're hypothermic. We got to get out. I'm going to lift. Maybe you get your butt up here. How are your muscles? Are you seizing? Was she worried that she just blew it again at that moment? What she said to me afterwards was, I hope that I'm a little bit worried that I'm just always going to be the mermaid that messes up in this series. And I'm kind of embarrassed. You know, we just we were 
close. I was, was really honestly close with all of the mermaids that we were filming. And, and I just was like, you know what, you are, you are in many ways representing our greatest fears, but also our greatest hopes. And we're going to be on the journey with you. And I really think the audience is going to be rooting for you and on the journey with you. So let's just see where this plays out. Let's just, let's just keep going. It takes an enormous amount, I think, of vulnerability to be in a documentary. I think it honestly, for the production side, also takes an enormous amount of vulnerability to make a, a documentary. Like, I didn't want to make something that was, you know, somehow like putting on a monocle and being like, well, who are these mer people? Let's look into their yeah. psychology. Like, that's, first of all, that's like from the outside and that's just icky and boring. And I didn't want to do something where it was like, you know, let's have one mermaid pit against another mermaid, sort of like that traditional reality, gross pitting against one. You know, I didn't want to do a feud like, within subcultures, yeah, right? It's just like, that's not <laughs> yeah. the filmmaker that I am. And it's not the team that I work with. It really should be sort of transcend that and be about our greatest hopes. And, and Sparkles really embodies that. That takes a lot of trust and vulnerability and sort of tr trying and bonding. But I think she felt very safe and close to our crew. You know, what's great about her, her arc is that she fails and she just immediately gets up and just tries again. And so it's yes. such a testament to how we should all be. There's also this kind of American story, I think. I mean, there's a universal appeal to mermaiding, but there's something about just the American optimism, like, all right, I'm going to dust myself off. I'm going to get up. I'm going to be inventive. I'm going to try it again. Um, this kind of entrepreneurial spirit that I think runs through her narrative in particular that um, I think just speaks to a lot of us. So the conventional image of a mermaid is this, you know, thin white woman with, you know, flowing blonde or, you know, red hair. You show us that there are subsets in this community, including for black performers, including for body positive mermaids. I'm curious, did the subsets in this community form because they feel like, you know, they're outsiders in the larger community or because they want to build a place within the mermaid community that's like, this is us? I, how did you feel about these groups? What were they like? I think both. I think that, you know, Shea Monique started the Society of Fat Mermaids because she loves mermaiding, but she's she is also absolutely a leader in body positivity and in re, really redefining the definition of beauty and also re, sort of reowning traditionally shaming words like fat, just reowning that word. Shay said to me at one point, it's not in the film, but it always stuck with me. She said, you know, just existing in my body every day is a radical act. And I loved that sentence. It's really true. I think that the mermaid community is an incredibly inclusive community and a very, very diverse community. But so goes mermaiding. So goes the country. So goes mermaiding. So goes the world. Like this is also the way in which the culture is shifting globally and should. And the language is shifting globally and the and the sense of belonging and the sense of, um, you know, even beauty standards, it's all shifting as it should. And mermaiding is, uh, is representative of that. I want to talk about process for a minute. You mentioned an underwater camera before. Um, is that a new medium for you? Have you ever done anything like that before? <laughs> Actually, before I got this job, I directed a commercial that was underwater because I also direct commercials. So I directed a commercial with a uh, Olympic swimmer, Simone Manuel. And so we worked with an underwater DP 
And I loved it. (laughs) And I'd actually done some documentaries that had some underwater shooting as well. So that was something when I was interviewing for this job, I could say, hey, look, you know, I do this very intimate documentary style filmmaking where it's mostly cinema verite and I follow people over time. And I like to make verb films, not noun films, where we're really verb films, meaning we are in the moment and we're letting the action unfold and we're we're showing more than we're telling. My greatest joy is to be sort of in chaos and filming chaos and making sense of it through the camera lens and then figuring out how to cover enough of it, even if it's just single camera, so that you can edit something that's very smooth. So that I think helped um, because I had done this underwater work and this underwater commercial work. And this project was really a marriage for me of like some of that very high end commercial cinematography that I've been doing in the commercial world. And then the very intimate documentary storytelling. And then it really was a hybrid. It was a fusion of like the beauty, the commercial beauty, and then the sort of more scrappy documentary, intimate storytelling. So we had different kinds of cameras for different kinds of underwater sequences. Um, At one point, I actually, about a year ago, I I was sleeping, I was dreaming. And I was dreaming that I was at Atlantis in the Bahamas. This is crazy. This is true. It was a it was a dream, and I dreamt that I was in the underwater city of Atlantis, of the Atlantis Resort in the Bahamas, because I was aware that there was this sort of you know ruined city in the Bahamas yep. at this resort. And I dreamt I was with mermaids, and I was with the DP, and we were shooting mermaids underwater in slow motion, and it was the opening title sequence. And I woke up and I thought wait, what, why aren't we doing that? Wait, that's the opening. (laughs) That's the opening. This happened during Hurricane Ian. It was coming into Florida. We'd been filming at Mer Taylor in Florida and we needed to vacate. We needed to get out because the hurricane was coming. And we got to Miami and we needed to fly into the Bahamas and we barely made it out. Somehow we all got on that plane. It was really harrowing. And this hurricane was barreling down towards us and we and we lifted off with all this equipment and we got over to Atlantis and then we had prearranged um to film in Atlantis they were incredibly generous with us and so on the edge of a hurricane we filmed this with mermaids and there's this shot at the end of the series where you see Eric says that you know you're there's there's nothing above you're you're just there in that moment and everything above the surface doesn't matter and you see rain falling on the surface, that was the hurricane, which was actually wow. really beautiful, like on the surface. So we filmed it um, over the course of two days in very strict windows of time around the animal feeding because they had very strict um, feeding <laughs> times for their wildlife, for their marine life. And um, we filmed it. And then and I was like, this is it. This is it. And then I brought it to Scout Productions and brought it to Netflix. So that was just one of those things where I was like, I, I could feel it. I literally dreamt it and then thought, I just am going to go do this. I'm going to actually, with all of this precious shooting time and money, this is worth leaning into and investing in. And I'll bring it back and show people what I what I'm seeing, what I've dreamt. And I, you know, that title sequence is really special, special to us, special mm. to me, I think special to the mermaids, because that's the experience. That's the feeling of what it's like to be underwater. 
you're building a world just like these (laughs) mermaids did. I have a question for you then. You know, one of the conventions of this art seems to be having a performer name like Pixie or Sparkles or the Red River Man. When you were making this film, did you ever imagine like, what would my mermaid name be? That's so funny. That's so funny. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, I really am. I am not a strong swimmer. And my crew at one point point in 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 a motel in like the Holiday Inn, I think it was in Florida, we were given enough cloth Murtailer tails where there's this amazing shot of the crew of um, <laughs> my crew lined up with all their tails um, on the side of the pool at the Holiday Inn um, in Crystal River, Florida. I, boy, I am not a strong swimmer, so I would be the worst mermaid. I am much, much more <laughs> of a land person. I will tell you that on set, sometimes on commercial sets, people call me suede because I'm seaweed. So maybe it would be something. Maybe mermaid suede. I'm not, I don't know. I don't even know what it would be, but it would definitely be more landlocked. I have to ask, did you start saying shallow to everybody on, on set? Did you start using yeah. the mermaid lingo? Yes. Um, I, I resisted it for a really long time. I resisted a lot of the, <laughs> the mermaid language for a really long time. But, you know, then you live with this and you, you know, you're filming it and then you're working with the post. And so even in our Zooms or our calls with the editors, we would start out, we'd be like, shallow. Okay, let's go. <laughs> yes. And then I knew that I was hooked when I, I saw my mom recently and I said to my mother, shallow. So, yes. (laughs) So in the last episode, we do see this pageant for people from around the world. So we do know that, you know, mermaiding is this, you know, culture that is thriving in different places. And I'm curious, what do you think the future holds um, for these merpeople performers? And do you think that your series is going to inject more interest in this kind of performance art? Yes, I think that there's something that I think has really profoundly and fundamentally shifted for all of us um, having lived through the pandemic. And that is we all want a sense of freedom. I think we all want a greater sense of connection to nature. I think that we all want to be able to escape some of the really bad news and drudgery of just daily living and that we are on the cusp. I think that mermaiding is about to, it it has been growing at an exponential rate, but it's about to explode. My only concern is I would want people to do this very, very safely. Like I don't, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, if somebody wants to be a mermaid, that they really understand that this is dangerous and that it takes a lot of training and that you need to know what you're doing and you need, you know, all kinds of safety measures for that. It's, you know, I don't want somebody to get in a tail and like flop into a river and not be safe. But yes, I think that we're at a breaking point. We're at a precipice. And part of it just is, it, it's actually beyond mermaiding. Part of it is just about how we define ourselves and how we claim freedom for ourselves. I think it's, that's universal. Mm. And I'm somebody who is, I'm not a strong swimmer. I tend to prefer to hike in the mountains rather than be near the ocean. But that doesn't mean that I I can also really understand that sense of just wanting to throw off any kind of shackles of being like being pre-described or predetermined or being told that I need to be a certain way, throwing all of that away and just finding my kind of true authentic self. And that's the universal part of it. But very specifically, mermaiding, I think we're on the on the cusp, on the precipice, on this really sort of watershed moment of change. And I think that mermaiding will grow even more at an exponential rate. And 
for, for hobbyists and for people that want to pursue it professionally as well. And also the opportunities I think are going to grow partly just because we're in this kind of mermaid, this mermania right now. Um, it's a really great thing. I mean, it is it's a beautiful, beautiful art form. It's like underwater ballet. And there should be more places that the general public can see and enjoy and experience it. Well, thanks to your series, if I have an opportunity to experience it, I am going to run and not walk to do so. Cynthia Wade, uh, director and executive producer of Mer People, what a pleasure watching your series and what a pleasure talking to you about it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Cynthia Wade. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 